What is here? Gold. Yellow. Glittering. Precious. Gold. No! Gods! I'm no idle votaries. Roots, you clear heavens! Why? Not so much of this. We'll make black, white, foul, fair, wrong, right, base, noble, old, young, coward, valiant. This, you gods, what this? Why? This will lug your priests and servants from your sides, pluck pillows from beneath stout men's heads. This yellow slave will knit and break religions, bless the accursed, make the whore leprosy adored, place thieves and give them title, knee and approbation with senators on the bench. Why, this is it that makes the whoppened widow wed again. She whom the spittlehouse and ulcerous sores would cast the gorge abyss, embalms and spices to the April day again. Come, damned earth, thou common whore of mankind that puts odds amongst the rout of nations. I'll make thee do thy right nature. <laughs> Timon of Athens's about face regarding money is one of the clearest depictions of feelings about money in all of Shakespeare. It's a shocking indictment of the thing that only a few acts prior had been the very center of Timon's world. When he believed he had it all, his wealth gave him purpose for living. And now that he has nothing, money ruins everything it touches. It's a relatable moment in a play that pulses with bitterness and vengeance. As we talked about in our last episode, who among us hasn't looked out on the late-stage capitalist hellscape beyond our windows and also believed that money has done nothing but caused destruction? Money is not the only economic driver, of course. There are various social economies in which value is placed on, say, sexual status, married versus unmarried, virgin versus non-virgin, or reputation or parentage and legitimacy, some of which can be bartered for or traded or manipulated in order to change one's place in the world. Shakespeare explores these too. Of course he does. But the unique focus given to currencies and transactions and monetary systems and the relationships between the financial power brokers that populate his plays, it is all uniquely interesting to look at. We know that Shakespeare was writing in a transformational age, when a burgeoning mercantile economic system was taking hold across most of Europe, and the old feudal systems were soon to be dismantled. The renaissance of mainland Europe, both in Italy and in the north, had led to an age of exploration and discovery. New lands were being claimed by the soon-to-be colonial powers, and new trade routes were vastly expanding the wealth of the new merchant class, who suddenly wielded extraordinary power never before seen outside of royalty in the landed gentry. Now, as we've mentioned before, the anxieties that arose as a result of the sudden changes to the structure of Shakespeare's social strata are ever-present in his works. If you could suddenly become wealthy, you could just as easily lose it all as well. So Shakespeare shows people earning money and shows them losing money. Their economic fortunes expand when they learn of their true parentage or dissolve when their ships founder on the rocks. Some people invest their whole concept of self in their jobs or their means of earning a living or the lack of such means as the case may be. Some are obsessive about the minutiae of their fortunes. Others, like our friend Timon, are blissfully ignorant. Through it all, it is natural to wonder what Shakespeare was trying to tell us about money. He was, after all, the owner of his own theater company, a man who made several wise financial decisions involving his land holdings in his later years. He'd grown up around money. Surely we can read into his plays and discover something of the business acumen and economic philosophy of the man, right? Maybe, maybe not. I honestly don't know that it's our place to do so. All the same, we're going to look at the various depictions of money and economic concerns in this episode of The Bix Pod. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar. 
An hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Eden. I'm Lindsay. And this is the Big Spot. And we are here today to discuss the. Uh, oh, as I said in my essay, yeah. money and Shakespeare. Money. Shakespeare and money. That's right. The, the, t- <laughs> the combination of the two uh, great forces of our time, Shakespeare and money. <laughs> right, right, yes. <laughs> totally equal in every way. Um, yeah, and we wanted to, I mean, this is a topic that we discussed in our last episode with Time of Athens, as Lindsay uh, articulated in the, the intro as well. That's a play all about the, the power of money and wealth and and uh, controlling money and power that way. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's weaved throughout many of his plays so we wanted to take a look at it holistically and and kind of uh discuss the various ways and shapes that money and uh the things that money touches are talked about in shakespeare and we're going to do that by talking about the society the class structure the economic structure of the time that shakespeare was writing in his own background um and and life growing up Mm -hmm. in this society and then i think we've got four or five plays we're going to kind of touch on as as kind of um examples examples yeah anything. yeah yeah because i mean it is there's references throughout yeah about being you know even something as simple as like a whoremonger or something like that right. you know like as an insult it, it has a monetary component to it because it's it's the selling of sex that's right. that's you know a terrible thing in the shakespearean time but also so, something that everybody's doing <laughs> exactly. you're either buying or selling it right, <laughs> right. so yeah so know. There's a whole set of contradictions uh, and confusion and moralism. Yeah, all tied together into into the realm of money, and so it pops up in all of the plays. Yeah. But these are the ones that that are kind of most prevalent, I would say. So, Aiden, you kind of did a, a but a, a butt of research, a bunch of research. <laughs> I was I was combining bunch and bit, like those are two opposite things. I was thinking but load. Because a, but- a buttload sure. of research. Aiden, you were going to do a buttload of research <laughs> um, on the mercantile system and early capitalism. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so just why don't you to, walk us through that? Uh, yeah, I'll just give you a, a, the high-level background, uh, similar to what we kind of touched on in our very first episode, but a, a little more detail around how it actually worked and, and some of the competing forces that were at play. So um, before this time period, you had kind of feudalism and... What's feudalism, Aiden? <laughs> Feudalism, Lindsay, is a uh, socio-political economic system involving uh, vassals and lords and uh, people owe service to their lords and it can be offered in usually, for the most part, uh, economically speaking, it was primarily taxes were paid through grain or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you were producing on the land, you had to pay some of that to your lord who would then take that and contribute it to make his armies or sell it abroad for gold or whatever. Um, But feudalism was very much a barter-based economy. Economy. There mm-hmm. was there was really no coinage. Uh, it was you know literally kingdoms were too uh, fluid and dynamic, and uh, you know it was literally just like well this guy was king and then three of his sons all died, and so now this cousin over here is the king and he doesn't have all the same land, so the coins couldn't even circulate and stuff. Right. It was a confusing mess. Uh, feudalism as a whole. And what kind of came about in the modern, uh, early modern era, the Elizabethan times, the Jacobean times, the 16th, 17th century, is this the sense of mercantilism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kind of the predominant economic thinking uh, of that era. Aiden, what's mercantilism? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking, Lindsay. Uh, at that, well, at the highest level, it's kind of it's again more of a political idea than an economic idea. Mm. Like if if we were looking at it from a, a modern economic class perspective, you wouldn't really recognize a whole lot because right. uh, it it makes some very silly what we would now view as silly assumptions about what wealth is and right. about uh, how economies work. Um, so at the highest level, mercantilism was all about hoarding gold within your country hoarding precious metals or, it was, yeah yeah it's, that's how wealth was viewed was the the possession of precious metals usually gold and silver mm-hmm. um so the the whole economic system was kind of based around that idea of you want to bring as much gold and silver into your country as you can yeah um and you want to give out as little as possible mm-hmm. so there was a very specific set of uh economic policies that accompanied that 
primarily you want to export as much as you can because mm-hmm. when you're exporting something, someone's giving you gold in exchange for the thing that you're sending off. So you wind up with more gold. So mm-hmm. therefore, you're better off than the person who bought it from you. Uh, Where do you get the resources to produce the things that you're going to export? Only from your own country. That's that's the whole thing. <laughs> or your colonies. Well, I mean, that's that's there's a we'll get there. We'll get okay. there. Let's stick with the basics of mercantilism for now. Uh, you want to export everything, import nothing, because mm-hmm. then that would mean that you're giving your gold away to yeah. give it to somebody else. Um, and as much as possible, you want to do all the upgrading. So if you yes. have, uh, you know, you're growing uh, sheep and you're fleecing those those sheep for their wool, you want to also build the cloth and yeah. the clothing that will come from those those sheep right in your own countries. Because right. otherwise you have to export them and you or you have to import the, the, the finished, finished goods product, back yeah. in. And that's worth more money than the wool that you exported. So right. in this Ba- very basic understanding uh you're worse off even if it was much much cheaper to actually <laughs> import it uh and have someone else do the do the finishing so those are kind of the basic principles mm-hmm. that everybody worked with and it's it's kind of uh important to realize that this was just kind of emerging in shakespeare's right. time uh there was a few treatises wrote in around written Roten. Roten. <laughs> they were written about 1550s or so, and then it really kind of picked up uh, through the 16, early 1600s. So this was, it wasn't really an established idea, but mm-hmm. it was circulating. And this this idea of uh, gold being the be end all end all uh, was definitely present. It just hadn't been kind of finalized. Okay. Um, and the purpose of all of this really was a political thing. It was to make the nation rich. Um, there make was the monarch rich. Well, exactly. Make the, <laughs> well, the monarch and the nation are the yes. same thing in this case. Uh, so, but I mean, even in, even the Dutch, when they had their Republic in uh, a couple of years later after this, yes. after they'd separated from, yeah, after they separated from the Spanish, uh, they, they kind of continued the mercantilist mm-hmm. system. So it was really, um, yeah, it was, it was this, this system to make the, the nation as wealthy as possible, yeah. uh, in order to, uh, yeah, project power and do the do the things that the monarch or the country wanted to do. Yeah. Things like conquering the new world or exploring uh, around the Cape of Good Hope or uh, invading India later mm-hmm. on for, for uh, the British Isles. Uh, or French, the French famously were just focused on becoming a wealthy nation in order to control Europe, basically. Right. They, they could pull levers and, and fight wars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the, the idea of it. Within that, though, uh, within that kind of skewed kind of understanding of the political system yeah, well yeah and the economics are the skewed understanding of the economics um there was a lot of capitalist features and mm-hmm. those are the things that we recognize today things like um corporations corporations mm-hmm. were starting to be founded in this time in fact the british east india company was founded mm-hmm. in the year 1603 i think um and that lasted until whatever 19 something i think right so the hudson's bay company hudson's bay company 16, was yeah 60 something? something yeah so i mean these things last for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and they were corporations they were mm-hmm. businesses business entities that were designed to last longer than any monarch any individual who mm-hmm. would work with them uh they were there to fulfill the economic needs of in these cases usually the colonizers seeking their resources that they needed to and and given incredible power too like oh, i mean yeah. you talk about the east india company in the in the east indies or the hudson bay company in north america yeah. I mean, like they, they owned the land stuff. they had yeah. yeah like i mean the, yeah. the 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 political decisions in these conquered countries yeah. were being made by Businesses. Businesses, The yeah. same way yeah. that Amazon and Apple and Google make decisions exactly. for us yeah. today. Um, and beyond that, uh, the, those companies, though, were, were driven by profit. It was it was a very profit motive mm-hmm. kind of uh, idea, which is very capitalist. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of stays true today. Um, the fact that they had all these powers beyond what we would now associate with most corporations, although I'm sure a lot of them do, you know, terrible, terrible political things as well. But uh, we, that's not all we're going to talk about today. Um, so, yeah, the basic principles of capitalism were being laid here. Yeah. Um, and another part of that, uh, also very important, uh, financial instruments. So before this, uh, you know, usury was, uh, I'm giving air quotes, sorry, you can't yes. see that. Uh, usury was bad. Uh, yeah. And it was basically any sort of loan, uh, especially the Catholic Church had a, took a very hard stance against this for a while. I read Especially about, for interest. Yeah, you could well, loan exactly. money, but you couldn't make money off of exactly. that loan. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, exactly. Loans for interest. So banks did not exist yeah. uh, until well into the 15th century, uh, and then they picked up after that. Um, and part, a big part of that was actually uh, lower interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went from around 40% 
per annum usually wow. down to about nine or ten, which was like a huge right. change, and people could all of a sudden afford to borrow without going bankrupt immediately. Yeah. So uh, that really helped, and it also that uh, easy lines of credit and stuff mm-hmm. helped pave the way for investments and things like yes. colonies and yeah. manufacturing and land appropriations. So you could you know have your huge estates that would be Produce more efficient. Yeah, and, exactly. And whatever. Yeah, they could yeah. focus on uh, crops for cash as opposed yeah. to subsistence farming which yeah. again feudalism so so this is all kind of changing and shifting um and another key impo- component of that again drawing the contrast feudalism money mm-hmm. money's existing coins are out there yep. uh there's a lot of them shakespeare makes tons of reference to coins yep. uh and it's it's again a, a shift away from the bartering system that, that came before you had money that retained a value and you could you know yeah. save it up and spend it later and it doesn't go bad in a storeroom and the rats can't eat it and stuff it's not great you know and was, and i'm not 100 percent sure about all of this you probably know way more than i do but like the gold standard and the silver like pound sterling and stuff yeah. like that start being introduced as like the thing that holds the value so you're you're basically like creating a currency mm-hmm. that is weighed against something static right yeah 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 they're they're trying to establish uh yeah i mean this is the era of standardization yeah like they're trying to finalize weights and stuff this is so all this stuff is happening at the same time and it's all kind of coming together into this into this system methinks thou art a general offense and every man should beat thee i think thou was created for men to breathe themselves upon thee so that's that's how it worked Mm -hmm. nationally like Mm -hmm. that's if you looked at the theoretical application of mercantilism that's what happened. It came from feudalism, moved on. Yeah. But uh, it, as a person on the ground, you're living in English in English times. I yes. was going to say in England in these times. Uh, you know what? What do you kind of see? It's definitely a, it's a much bigger growth in the merchant class uh, because you can have that value. You don't have to get paid in grain to ship yeah. your your uh, sh- your sheep fleece yes. uh, over to somewhere else. You can just take cash for it. Yeah. And then uh, you can use that cash for other things such as investing in a different sheep fleecing operation or whatever, right? right? So there, there's a lot more that, that monetization creates much more opportunities for uh, merchants and tradespeople and all sorts of people to specialize and, you know, do the capitalist thing, division of labor and what have you. Um, it also had huge impacts on class yeah. uh, and how people viewed each other so uh those merchant classes they didn't exist within the feudal paradigm mm-hmm. of you know the great chain of being everything they they were in some cases starting to get richer than the than the nobles which again you've seen in some of shakespeare's plays yeah um so this this really kind of upended the whole idea of class uh as well well and it made it so that you could um move up the social mm-hmm. ladder up or down and um and then the, you have the emergence of like uh guilds and stuff like that that are starting to um i guess create kind of rudimentary labor laws almost mm-hmm. for the people that they were representing so you you start to see a little bit of that um that crop up there yep. sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 and that's exactly that, that was my next point was yeah you form these kind of guilds which are precursors to unions mm-hmm. and um you also have reactions to those right. these changes right with the the sumptuary laws and, mm-hmm. and the laws about dress code that uh elizabeth signed into law because you wanted to try the there was a big reactionary push say oh no no this is too much change these these people are going to be too uh involved they can't wear silk. Uh, yeah, they can't wear silk. You're Only a the, peasant. Exactly. It yeah. doesn't matter that you're richer than the crown right now. Yes. You're still a peasant. So they, they introduced these laws to try and uphold these things. Um, and also it was, it was interesting to read uh, that often uh, the reason they didn't want too many people buying these things because none of them were made in England. Right. So if you brought in jewels from Italy and uh, silk from you know the Ottoman Empire or wherever it's coming from. Uh, it's money leaving the country. It's co- money leaving the country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's against the mercantile system. So uh, there were all these things kind of coming together to, mm-hmm. to create these these social pressures. So it's definitely just a, it's a shift. It's a big shift. Yeah. And, and Marx did comment on this early form of capitalism kind of replacing feudalism Mm -hmm. and and, uh you know who knows what happens after that oh right communism (laughs) all hail the comrades so that's that's uh, wow (laughs) so i've been watching a lot of world war ii stuff the comrade stuff is everywhere i can't help it uh so yeah that's that's kind of the rundown of of how the system worked and uh shakespeare was living in that he was living in that change and that that's what's really hard to just uh 
put your head around to an extent. It's like we've lived in capitalism our whole lives. Yeah. Um, Our whole society is built up around it. Yeah. It's been our way of life for hundreds of years at this point since the Industrial Revolution. So it's hard for us to imagine uh, a shift underway to to move away from that. Or move towards that. Move away from something. Well, yeah. Or to move into something else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We we can't imagine that happening. So I mean, I, I guess you could look at the information revolution of the you know 80s 90s i suppose you know going from but it doesn't change no not like not like economics of it no and that's that's the that's the really important thing is that shakespeare yeah grows up in this in this world where i mean his father's a merchant his father Mm -hmm. um famously gets into trouble for his illegal dealings yes those sheep uh, fleeces aren't gonna (laughs) ship themselves that's for sure (laughs) um but he was able to uh, work his way up the social ladder in order mm-hmm. to become um, like the mayor of Stratford upon yeah, Avon, which yeah. was not exactly a position that a hundred years earlier, you know, Shakespeare's grandfather, great grandfather, great great grandfather could have envisioned. Right? Yeah. Like these are new positions. This is a new way of living. So Shakespeare, as a young boy, is is brought up in this and sees the value in that so much so that. I mean, I don't know how much he paid, 35 pounds or something yeah, like that to, for his or, family crest. But yeah. that was an important thing. Like, the, you could buy status yeah. in that way. Yeah. I mean, that the fact that he did that shows how much he um, valued, I guess, the yeah. the this we valued at 35 pounds worth. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I mean, 35 pounds, that's a lot of money. Well, exactly. Right? So, I mean, well, and that's the new thing is like, exactly. the, the, you can assign a dollar value to being a noble, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that kind of, in Shakespeare's personal life, what little we know of him mm-hmm. comes from legal and business yes. documents and transactions that happened. It's, it's aside from the plays, which are their own thing. Anything else that survives in his hand, like his signatures, those are all on like legal documents or, um, uh, well, mostly legal documents, really, mm-hmm. his will and stuff like that, where um, you kind of get a sense of what he valued as a 16th, 17th century man, yeah. right? Um, the land that he bought, the mm-hmm. the fact that he, um, buying new house and, and you know, re- vamping it I, yeah. that's not the word i was renovating. looking for but renovating yeah, yeah. it yeah <laughs> uh, making it you know the the grandest house in in stratford upon avon he owned that house like that's that's a power move right yeah, that's totally. that's something that a, a merchant's son is going to do someone mm-hmm. with a lot of money and like i said he's a he's a business owner he runs his own theater company um so not only is he a creative person he's you know we might have talked about this before he has to know how to make a profit off of those creations Mm -hmm. so he's going to play to the base and he's going to um, do what's popular maybe not what's the most elegant or the most beautiful but he's going to you know he's going to talk to the groundlings he's going to because they're the ones or, who are going to make his money. Or he might like, uh, which play was it? Where oh, it was yeah. probably never performed, but, but it was commissioned. But maybe it was put on for the, yeah. for the courts. Yeah, right? exactly. The of like courts. if someone's going to pay you 20 pounds to write a play, you're going to write the for play. Measure, you're going to do it, right? <laughs> exactly. So. so, I mean, that's that's a unique position because before that, I don't think you had, you know, Chaucer isn't th- sitting around thinking about what's going to earn him no, money. No, he had his patron and yeah. they took care of him and exactly. he wrote his poetry. Yeah. But now you're you're creating things for a market, a market yeah. right? It's it's the commodification of art, the, mm-hmm. the early days of this kind yeah. of thing. Not to say at all that Shakespeare doesn't have artistic <laughs> moments. That's definitely not what we're trying to say. But it's just this marriage of of mercantilism and, and the market-based economy and art and the creation of art. Shakespeare's living in this world. And, and so it's it's really hard to tease apart um, the economics sometimes. I think that it has to have played into and bled into what yeah. he's writing. Even if he's taking a story like Time of Athens um, that was uh, written and and talked about, you know, thousands of years earlier mm-hmm. – um, it's still going to it, – it, there's a reason he's choosing that play yeah. or to write, you know. And, and so, yeah, I think the anxieties about this new world that they're living in, it has to play into that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is what we've kind of talked about many times generally as one of Shakespeare's strengths is that he brings – old stories mm-hmm. and makes them relevant for yeah. his, his contemporary audience. Yeah. And so, yeah, when he's talking about money in Time and Time, it was like 
the 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 world of ancient Athens was not like the the play Timon of Athens, right? No. Um, because Timon of Athens is London in sixteen oh five, right? Yeah. Like this is the world that Shakespeare knows and is creating for his audience. So the Timon's concerns are Shakespeare's concerns, or yeah. the the concerns of Shakespeare's time. Yeah. So it's it is definitely um, yeah they're they're reflective of the the Elizabethan. Sensibility, kind of yeah, 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 and, and uh, specifically about money, yeah. Mm-hmm. So now it is important to remember that, um, broadly speaking, economics, yeah, was not something that was yeah. studied. It wasn't a thing. No, in fact, it, until like people say Adam Smith created yeah. like, the Wealth of Nations in 1775, yeah. which is a long way away from this. Yeah. So um, before that, it was political economy. Aristotle talked about it. Yeah. There were some French thinkers around again this time. And yeah. again, there were those early treatises I mentioned. But yeah, generally, nobody thought of the exchange of things because it was just it had been feudalistic yeah. for so long, for hundreds of years that yeah. it was just how it was. And yeah. there was no... Um, uh, compared to like ancient Rome had a very complex economy right. by comparison, right? Like they had a very monetized economy as well. Um, but that just disappeared. And then after that, it was, it was simple. Like you farmed the land and survived. And then, well, yeah, and but then the, the Renaissance Lord. comes and pulls from those classical models. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, so really we can blame Rome for everything. As always. Yeah. As always. But yes. All roads lead to Rome. But yes, economics, there were no economics professors. It wasn't mm-hmm. a philosophy that you could study or think about. Um, but it certainly had its tendrils and fingers and all sorts of, um, I don't know what metaphor I'm going for there. What has tendrils and fingers? Trees? Tree fingers? I was thinking more Japanese porn, but you know. Wow. (laughs) Okay. We'll move on (laughs) from this conversation. Um, The plays of Shakespeare Mm. still deal with all kinds of transactions, business transactions, um, like social transactions, political transactions. Mm -hmm. They all take place. And and you can look at it in our modern day understanding of economics and you can kind of see that this is, there's an economy here. Yeah. Um, but, taken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But it is really fun to look at um, the money side of it. And I have a list here. I, I got <laughs> yes. it from, it looked like it was somebody's like doctoral thesis or something. I'm going to link to it in the in the description for the podcast yeah. episode on Podbean. Um, but this, this person listed off every single mention of different kinds of currency mm-hmm. that Shakespeare mentions in his plays. Um, so there's the angel... The cardicue, which is a French silver, mm-hmm. copper crown, dollar, crusado, which is Portuguese gold or silver, the drachma from mm-hmm. Greece, of course. ducats, ecus, which are French gold and silver, roughly equivalent to about five francs, okay. um, the eight penny, 11 pence, um, farthing, French crown, gold, groat, half pence, half penny. Um, what else have we got here? The mark. Uh, the mark, Scottish silver, a mill sixpence, the noble, the obulus, penny, pound, press money, shilling, silver, sixpence, sixpenny, tester, testern, three farthing, three pence or threepence, uh, twelve pence, two pence or tuppence, and so on. And it just continues. goes on and on and on. So Shakespeare, I love this because um, Shakespeare is clearly, this is why people look at Shakespeare and they're like, well, he couldn't have just been uh, a playwright. He couldn't have just been some guy in yeah. London. He had to have known what... A drachma or a ducat. Well, ducats probably would have been more popular. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you know all of this stuff? Yeah. Where do you where do you get this information from? You live in London, and you live in London, and traders come from all over the world. Exactly. This is an international <laughs> city for yeah. the first time. Yeah. So yeah, the plays reflect that. There's yeah. there's this. It doesn't matter what currency you're talking about the people who are involved in the transaction of that currency are going to have the same relatable experience about holding on to that currency or giving it away for whatever reason and that is endlessly fascinating to me that there is just um it's like it's a microcosm of what's going on in the world at that time Mm -hmm. you've got a city where all of these traders are potentially interacting with one another and there's tons of different coinages and currencies and and everything all over the place i love that it's true and i mean to go back to the whole measurement and standardization thing uh the reason everybody you would see all these coins in England mm-hmm. in London is because people will just take them. It's not like now mm-hmm. where we'd have uh, exchange measures and be like, oh, this feels like 
this feels like a shilling. Uh, so I'll give you a shilling worth of whatever you're buying yeah, yeah. tonight, right? Like that. That's they were just basing it on on weight, and that's why yeah. debasing coinage was such a big problem. Because if you took in that shilling and it wasn't actually a shilling worth of right. silver, it was it was debased with some poor metal, and then when you tried to exchange it for the to the to somebody else, they'd be like, "Oh no, I'm not this taking that. That's yeah. not good enough. It's worthless." Yeah, right? like you were running that risk, right? So this was this was the era when uh, you could take if you got a bunch of random coins, you can send them all to the mint and they'd melt them down and send you or you would have the illegal practice i forget what it's called where they would like literally clip the edges of the coins to make them slightly smaller but then take those pieces from a hundred different coins and melt them down and make new coins so you know you're essentially printing your own money and this was like highly illegal right but um you know this is this is that time yeah yeah so the plays that we're going to talk about that deal with money, and, and there's a lot of credit has to go to B.J. Cook in the paper that he wrote on the numismatics of Shakespeare, which I will also link. Um, this is the very coinage of your brain, Shakespeare mm-hmm. and Money Revisited. Um, the plays we're going to talk about are Comedy Bearers, The Merchant of Venice, uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor, mm-hmm. King Lear, and Time of Athens. Makes sense. Um, so I think, let, let's just start with Comedy Bearers. I think that's the earliest one yeah. on our list, right? And, yeah. and we commented on it. When we were when we talked about that yeah. play, we were like, "This is a very money focused play." It is, and it's it is really uh, evidence. I mean, you're starting off with a trade war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, between exactly. Ephesus and Syracuse, yeah. which is the the whole. It sets about the <laughs> the complex yes, plot. If you remember, plots, the comedy yeah. bears is this two sets of twins who are each working with each other like yeah. one of them is a servant to the other and they're both Dromeo with the same name Dromeo yes, and uh, uh, Antiphilus Antiphilus yes and um, <laughs> yeah so you've got two brothers named Dromeo and two brothers named Antiphilus and they're separated at birth and then yeah. they meet again and, and the comedy of errors comes from um, them interacting with each other on their home turf and being misconstrued for misidentified each yes, for each yes, other yes. so when somebody gives Antiphilus of Syracuse, something that was meant yes. for Antiphilus of Ephesus, yeah. um, confusion results. And, and this is how the fortunes of these two brothers intersect. Yeah. Like you're either coming out on top or being thrown in jail because you've reneged on your debts, right? Yeah. And so money and fortune and the economics of that, mm-hmm. um, inter- of those interactions yeah. are the entire plot of the play. Yeah, literally it is. It's it, everything revolves around, oh, I gave him this necklace or whatever it was because there's the there's the lover. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a sex worker in there too yep. who's giving gifts away and yep. mad when the, the, the guy she thought it was doesn't recognize her because yeah. it wasn't him. Like this is, it's it's misconception, but it's it's all uh, about fancy things. Yeah. It's about the value of... Necklaces um, and, yeah. and, and affection as well, well in a certain extent and, and, and too. And that's the thing is, it's a play about you know like brotherly love Mm -hmm. kind of at the end of the day is what it boils down to and the the mother and father also reunite at the very end of the play because it's the cleanest of all the the comedies yeah um so it's it's about you know love Mm -hmm. and yet everything under under the undercurrent below that entire play is all about money and uh transactional nature yeah yeah of of these relationships because they are all and people like turn on each other really quick as soon as like yeah, you, I, the jeweler, he didn't have the thing that yeah. I gave him. You need to arrest him now. I don't well, care if we've been friends for the whole... That's exactly <laughs> it. So uh, as BJ Cook says, there's it's there's worry and tension if the golden chain of debt and payment is broken, mm. which is which is what the, the implicit and explicit understanding of these relationships is that if you borrow something from me, you're going to return it. And if I give something to you, you're going to give something in return. And, and that transactional nature has to be fulfilled and when it doesn't in this case luckily it's it's a comedy so you know nobody ends up dying there's no pound of flesh being exacted as in the next play we're going to talk about (laughs) but it still um it still leads to the problem the conflict in the play and that is yeah again it's just reflective of the fact that it's if it was a barter society it would be less yeah, because, setting. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like if it was just about, you know, grain being yeah, yeah, there's value on that. Yeah. But but it's gold 
necklaces and it's um uh there's a there's a whole bunch of other stuff and and even the the structure of the of the setting is very important because it's it's a city it's it's this urban environment where you can't just trust the farmer that gave you the grain is or that owes you the grain he's not going anywhere he's gonna be farming and you can see when he reaps his his fields he's gonna have grain but an international city is transient right people move in and out they come from the country they go back to the country shakespeare did that multiple times himself i mean you're you're not fixed you're you're not in fixed location it's it's um a little bit more uh, nomadic maybe in a weird way well it's more capitalist there's there's more freedom to exchange these goods and services for money yeah Mm -hmm. villain i have done thy mother um, which leads us to the next play, Merchant of Venice, I think mm-hmm. is the obvious contender for, um, yeah, uh, uh, the, the most money play. Yeah. It, well, I mean, <laughs> Climate of Athens too has that, has yeah. that reputation, I think, but definitely Merchant of Venice is the f- most famous one, yeah. right? Um, where you have, uh, Shylock giving Antonio the 3,000 ducats, which is worth about a thousand pounds in Shakespeare's mm. time, which That's is a lot of money. Lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And his audience would have understood that. Yeah. Right. Um, and Antonio is very confident that his, he his ship's will, coming in. his ship is literally coming in yeah. and he will be able to repay this. And of course it doesn't, not until the end in that weird twist of fate, mm-hmm. but um, he, as surety for this bond, he gives um a promise of a pound of flesh can be taken from me in, in repayment. And that's obviously the, the crux of the play. The yeah. whole, the whole conflict is, mm-hmm. is around this. Um, with this subplot of Portia and her, yes. Um, again, it's, it's still financial. There's still commentary about, um, like the gold chest, the silver yes. chest and the leaden chest. Yeah. And, um, a kind of a subtle subversion of what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Gold would obviously be the the, the, the obvious valuable. choice because yeah. that's the most valuable. But of course, her portrait is in the lead casket, um, which only the truest of heart can can understand. So the foolish ones choose the shiny ones. Um, all that glisters is not gold, mm-hmm. as the the play says. So um, there, it seems like there's a bit of a commentary there too, and it it reflects um, the main plot, especially as it comes yeah. to Shylock. Who confuses his love well, exactly. for Jessica and yeah. his love for his ducats? My yeah. daughter, my ducats, right? Yeah. Which is like super pathetic. Well, yeah, but it, but it is. It, again, this play is all concerned about um, the value of human life. Yeah, and com, you know, comparing it in monetary terms. And Antonio's life is worth three thousand ducats. Exactly. And uh, what's her name again? Jessica. Ju- Jessica. Jessica's life is is it worth as much as his ducats? He's not sure, but it, that's that's the question that he has to face. And I mean, it is yeah. put on him as the Jewish character, you know, like for sure. And and yeah. you have to read that and understand that this is it's not just his daughter and the physical ducats, although there there probably is a little bit of that. But yeah. this is his livelihood. This mm-hmm. is his only means of of earning an income in yeah. Venetian society. So he's not just losing money; he's losing. Potentially, his ability to back any future yeah. loans that he gives yeah. out or whatever, yeah. right? So, um, so it is much more. It's it's much deeper than that, but it still revolves around money and that transactional nature of money. Mm-hmm. So then, when you get to the Portia's quality of mercy speech in yes. the courtroom scene, um, it it really underscores, you know, the vengeance that Shylock feels. Um, he's offered twice the sum that was originally loaned and he's still it's it it's not even about money anymore he's just so angry about his treatment the treatment of um his people but himself most particularly Mm. by all the people who wronged him who are sitting in front of him in this courtroom and so it's more about revenge at that point than it is about um honoring the bond that he and antonio have entered into the agreement that they've entered into so he's in forfeit of that as well and so that whole um interaction and that whole transaction is soured on Shylock's end because Antonio in the end does have the money to pay him back yes, and but he doesn't uh, care for it. Of course not, right? Yeah. So um and it's interesting also that this is the the whole crux of the courtroom scene is the the, the idea of the contract. You yeah. know, there's this very capitalist th- mm-hmm. uh, thing uh, as you said earlier like the transaction needs to complete. Yeah. And when it doesn't there needs to be consequences for that. It's it's the mm-hmm. classic capitalist structure of, of how business is done right yeah. so this is um 
I mean, that's what the that's where the the real drama of the play yeah. comes from is that the, the that difference between uh, whether a contract is good or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's morality there still. I mean, that's where the play kind of winds yeah. up coming down. Is like, no, the moral thing has to happen first. The money will sort itself out. Right. Um, and Shylock walks into it once Portia set him up, and, and yeah. he just walks right into the trap. But. Um, yeah, that 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 play kind of. This is, I'd say, a common occurrence in Shakespeare's mm. plays that um, money is a good plot device. Yeah, um, and characters can care about it, but really, uh, it's secondary to revealing the the uh, moral. It's not the solution, yes, right? It yes, doesn't exactly, it doesn't yeah. solve any of the problems. This is yeah. as Timon of Athens in the yeah. the opening quote. He ends up finding a bunch of money that would restore everything, but it's not the solution. the The problem goes much deeper than that. Yeah. For I must tell you friendly in your ear. Sell when you can. You are not for all markets. Uh, Mary Wives of Windsor is another one where, again, we did mention this uh, in our initial discussion of the play, mm-hmm. but uh, it's very interesting that Falstaff, uh, noted womanizer that he is, uh, <laughs> is really not so much focused on uh, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page so much as uh, their their husband's money. Yeah. Uh, he's really just, I mean, Falstaff is also a noted alcoholic and, and uh, spender Al- of cash. Always in debt. <laughs> always in debt. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting in that case that, uh, again, the value of especially a woman character mm-hmm. is mostly tied to uh, the economics of her situation, right? right. Like uh, Falstaff's not just there to uh, bang the ladies. Mm-hmm. He's there to take their money and pay off some debts. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting to take it from, you know, the, the Falstaff of uh, Henry the fourth, right. because uh, that Falstaff was very, um, freewheeling with the money yeah. i mean he had ha- he had how the backstop him you get the a sense bit, like yeah, yeah. you know he 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 had how's allowance to cover all of his expenses mm-hmm. um and this is the false staff that's kind of separated from that situation so mm-hmm. you get you get a slightly different one but the the underlying premise is the same is that this this character is not good at money right no definitely not <laughs> um and as it turns out in this play especially not good with women either yeah. um and that's again we're we're it's played for comedy it's it's really not a, a very serious concern we have as an audience for false staff no. money monetary situation no definitely not it's it's all played for comedy but it, but there is that subplot of um and page being yes, wooed by Fenton, yes. who also admits that money was the first thing that attracted him yes. to Master Page's that. daughter, yeah. but it it's grown to be more than that, yeah. you know, if we take him at his word. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's uh, Fenton and Falstaff really aren't all that dissimilar when you yeah, yeah. when you come down to it. It's just that um, one of them is a is a comic character, one of them is a romantic character, mm. and so you know which one is going to win out in the end yeah. and which one is going to be played for for a fool. Yeah. Um, but it is still this idea that, um, yeah, money comes before all else. And, of course, the, the love and the romance or the wooing or whatever is part of what enables you to hopefully get the thing you want most, which mm-hmm. is money. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's not it's not the central uh, it's not the, the goal, yes, right? This is yeah. not, uh, and 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 that of course reflects the some of the prevailing ideas about marriage as a transaction itself, right? Mm-hmm. Any kind of romantic relationship you would have entered into, certainly in um, the upper classes, yep. even through back through feudal times, would have been based on again that transactional nature mm-hmm. of what are you bringing to the table. Yep. Um, so this is what Falstaff kind of looks at, you know. Uh, if I can woo the wives, I can get the husband's money. Yeah. Somehow, I don't know how he actually expects yeah, that's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, he's just going to steal it, I guess. I don't know. It's who bizarre. knows? It's false staff. It doesn't matter. <laughs> this is the the funny part is seeing him thrown out with the washing yeah, in the exactly. in the river. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it it kind of underscores the transactional nature of um of interpersonal relationships yeah. in a way that you wouldn't expect from a play that was literally written to capitalize on the popularity of Queen Elizabeth's <laughs> favorite character. So, um, a nice little, uh, yeah. Artistic, uh, sneak in there. Definitely. Shakespeare. What do you know? <laughs> Have it be coward. Another one that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it's another kind of like, how do we value something kind of question that it raises is, mm-hmm. is King Lear. And it's, um, Lear kind of confusing, 
the filial piety with the value of the land that he's giving to his right. daughter. So um, he's like, oh, well, Cordelia, you don't love me anymore. So therefore you get nothing. no land. Um, and it's, it's based entirely on a, a very short lived display of affection, which is silly. But I mean, that's, that's, that's the crux of the play is that um, these things are combined power and wealth and land and all these things are given based on on love, yeah. um, and so it's it's really interesting to consider that, uh, not consider that Lear's view, but Shakespeare's view on mm-hmm. this on this idea that you yeah. would even do this in the first place. You would you would bestow all your possessions based on um, love, and yeah. you know, and as the king, Lear has that that. Uh, ability i guess he's not he's not beholden by any laws that says he has no. to give it to he split it amongst his children equally or anything like that so it's it's really a comment on um on that relationship between love and and money if that makes sense no totally and and then um the idea there to go even further with that once lear um is no longer king um and his daughters are i guess are co-regents what how would you yeah, describe I that i don't know how be. that how that would work really sure. we didn't think about that no. when we were talking about the play but um regan and goneril treat him appallingly bad mm-hmm. for somebody who believes that affection and love uh have been again if you want to talk about that cycle of debt and um repayment yeah. they've they've given him the love that they think yeah. that that he's owed, and now that transaction is done. Is they okay. have the land. He gave them land. She, she Regan mm-hmm. and Goneril, give him love. That's yeah. it. I no longer owe Daddy Lear anything. Yeah. Oh, Daddy Lear, that's not good. <laughs> King Lear, nothing. He gets nothing anymore. Um, but, um, but he still feels like that transaction is open. Like he can still go to their homes with his retinue, and and you know act as he always did mm-hmm. his social cachet his financial cachet his political cachet all of that has been drained but he doesn't know that yes. so in a weird way he's he is oblivious to um the power that he mm-hmm. believes he wields but no longer wields yeah. that he's given away and that's kind of a sad commentary on uh, you know the family structure and the family dynamics that are at play here to use the phrase again, the transactional nature of the Lear family is broken. But it's because of this misunderstanding. Um, That cycle for Regan and Goneril is closed. They're done. It's over. They no longer owe anything to their father. For Lear, he still believes it's open. Um, And Cordelia is kind of, I don't think for her it was ever a question it, it was never a transaction and that's probably why she doesn't fit into this yeah the structure yeah, of the play and yeah. the dynamic of the family because yeah. she doesn't view this as transactional she yeah. doesn't think that she can just say oh i love you and then oh here's your land yeah. you know it doesn't work like that for her in her mind she doesn't fit she she would make a very bad merchant <laughs> you know definitely um, well merchant of love at least i mean yeah that's that's the that's and that's really the the most damning thing about that play is mm-hmm. that, that he does simplify it his yeah. love and relationship with his children down to this simple transaction yeah. and, and it's dumb yeah. it's dumb Lear's dumb <laughs> nothing will come of nothing the final play Time of Athens of I think uh, we talked about this at length when we um in our last episode yes, yeah ago, oh my yes. gosh um so his need and uh neediness mm-hmm. for his friends for the affection of his friends very much like lear i think in that way um and as long as he has an endless supply of food and a banquet hall in which to serve it he has people to surround him mm-hmm. and give him that affection that he craves but um when the time comes for them to help him when he foolishly has spent all of his money uh he gets nothing in return. So very, very much like Lear, I guess, in that sense that he, um, for his friends, the transaction is complete and and they've gotten what they, well, I don't think they put in nearly as much into the relationship. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they showed up to his 
things and ate all this food. Like yeah. it, it is a very kind of again we I, I bashed on it last last episode, but it, it's a very strange play that way because you don't really get the sense that they were ever his friends, and no. you feel like Timon's just an idiot for not yeah. putting that together. But that is that is it. I mean, it's we just watched Booksmart last night. Yes, we and did. There was uh, it was a very funny movie by the way. Yes. Um, but there was that one character too who like yeah you can buy friends like mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents did it their parents did it like this yeah. is just how you do it you buy you buy people things and then they like you yeah and it it's it is so hollow right it, it, well it is and it's but it is something that to this day is it can feel natural because mm-hmm. money can buy you people's attention it d- does yeah. not buy their friendship no um and that's that's a distinction that it can be really hard to make if you were born rich and you're used to getting people to pay attention to you that way you can yeah. confuse it with uh, genuine affection right and entourage is another example the, yes. the show entourage which neither one of us has watched but nope. we know enough about it to suspect that it's probably very similar in that regard it's how do you know who those, yeah. who those friends are yeah. um Unfortunately for Timon, there is nobody who really seems to <laughs> yeah. uh, live up to... Well, his one friend who comes in conquers Athens. I guess that's yeah. true, yes. Alcibiades. Yes. Alcibiades, yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. And then, of course, this is the play... Aiden, you quoted Marx. Yeah. I'm going to quote Marx, oh, too. Good. Timon of Athens was uh, one of his uh, favorite, <laughs> his favorite plays. plays. Yeah, big And the, the speech at the beginning that um, that we we put in it before my essay yeah. was his favorite bit of Shakespeare. Okay. Because money corrupts everything. So, of yeah. course, Marx would say that, yeah. right? So. That's his favorite. It makes sense. What's mine is yours. And what is yours is mine. So, we did mention briefly at the beginning that there are other types of currency that are at play mm-hmm. in Shakespeare's plays. Um, we won't go into too much detail, but I think you can look at, you know, a play like The Taming of the Shrew and see that sexual currency or your your yeah. status, your sexual status, I guess. All's Well That Ends Well as well. Yeah. All's Well That Ends yeah. Well is another one. Yeah. Absolutely. Romeo and Juliet. Um, Troilus and Cressida too. Troilus yeah. and Cressida, 100%. Yeah. These are all plays that deal with the, the virginal status of a woman or the marital status of a woman or man, in the case of All's Well That Ends Well, mm-hmm. um, and how that ties into their worth as a person, right? I mean, All's Well That Ends Well famously has, you know, uh, you know, married women and uh, sex workers and mm-hmm. virgins all kind of being contrasted against one another because you're seeing, it would be like seeing, a, a, this is terrible, like shillings and pence and pounds, like all put together, <laughs> right? Because it's like um, the, the, value, the, ver- yeah. the value yeah. increases or decreases depending on yeah. which person you are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then... Um, I guess Othello uh, being a play about reputation and yeah. um, uh, your your social standing, I guess, right? Yeah. Whether you have power or not. And, and you know, you can read into that all the, the racial connotations of that too, which you yeah. can in a, in a modern yeah. sense, less, maybe it was less important back then, the racial politics of it. But um yeah. yeah, yeah, I and think Merchant that's... Merchant of Venice also yeah, is, exactly. is very much about reputation as well. It's yeah. it's not so much um, just the money. It's it's the sense that Antonio is worried if he won't be viewed as a good merchant anymore, and Shylock won't be viewed as a good money lender. Like, the, well, the, the, he, yeah, exactly. And his identity is taken away from yeah, him at the end, which yeah. which feeds into that too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's um, there's that as a different kind of currency, and and you know people in those plays have more or less ability to trade um, to increase their value as people or decrease their value as Mm -hmm. people. But you do still see their value diminishing or increasing as the play kind of... Yeah, swings. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And just a quick mention, we've already talked at length about this. In fact, I think we may have done a whole episode on we it. We definitely did. <laughs> uh, but the, the economics of Shakespeare today is, you know, Shakespeare Incorporated, you know, <laughs> like what what is, what? how does uh, Shakespeare uh, operate in the modern world? And there is a whole industry around him of, of tourism and academia and all these things. Um, the performances obviously are yeah. big moneymakers. So um yeah, there's a whole episode on that, and, and there's also a BBC article I see. Yeah, I'll be linking to that okay. as well. It's a little dated. It's it's eight years old or seven years old, but um, it does talk a little bit about the, the money that's involved in um, people who put on classes about Shakespeare or, mm-hmm. you know, the tourism industry in Stratford-upon-Avon or um, how much it costs to put on a play and that kind of thing. So um, I think this is also interesting to think about because Shakespeare in a modern 
context, if Shakespeare were alive today, looking at what his works have spawned, he'd probably be pretty impressed. Yeah, I mean, like, as wow. as a guy who who spent thirty five bucks, thirty five pounds to uh, <laughs> uh, get himself his family crest yeah. created, yeah. Um, he'd be pretty chuffed i think to have uh you know a billion dollar industry or more sprung up around his his name so if i longer stay we shall begin our ancient bickerings which leads us very nicely into our uh ancient bickerings question today yes we've Um, uh we've decided to take uh uh shakespeare and modern economics look at things uh essentially Lindsay, there's one story happening around us in our lifetime Mm. That has to do with a lot of money. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Which one, what would it be that you'd like to see Shakespeare write a play about? Ooh. Okay, so, I mean, the obvious answer would be something about the pandemic, right? And the, the billions oh, and trillions yes, of dollars that have been yes. that have been thrown at, you know, pandemic mitigation, right? Okay. Um, and vaccine development and yeah. all that stuff. Like, I, I could see that, you know, the morality tale of the anti-vaxxer versus scientist, <laughs> you know? Sure, sure, um, yeah. I could see Shakespeare get really getting his teeth into it. But I, I think the, the, the hubris, the sheer testes the- of Jeff Bezos <laughs> flying a say. giant penis into space would capture the imagination of the bard like no other story today. And I could totally see him, you know, writing. It would be like Richard III level villainy and and irony. And it wouldn't end well. I mean, it would end in catastrophe as the, you know, penis ship explodes (laughs) slash ejaculates all over the world. Um, from however many thousand feet up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that would be the story that Shakespeare would, that's, if he were alive it. today, yeah. that's, he, that's we would have right. next year premiering in the West End. Yeah. Penis ship. William Shakespeare's penis ship. Eject from them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. That's Nocturnal good. emission. <laughs> that's not bad. I, as soon as you said pandemic, I was mm-hmm. thinking like, yeah, no, a, a disaster. And then I realized, see, Shakespeare's an adapter. And uh, so he would have taken something that's already been done uh-huh. and he would have made it even better. Okay. And so I'd like to see The Big Short by William Shakespeare because <laughs> I think that would be amazing. He would do... It is a very Shakespearean story, isn't it? It is, right? right? Like all these like bad actors and they're all jerks and they're all just in it for themselves. Power hungry. Power hungry and there's dynamics there. And, like, and there's the poor sap who got the subprime mortgage <laughs> yes, and exactly. yeah, now I'd, has nothing. Yeah, I'd love to see him tackle the 2008. Oh financial crisis that would yeah. be that would be quite something too but um with with just one scene where you've got obama and bush just <laughs> talking you know it would be like the random throwaway scene between two porters in a in a <laughs> courtyard and they just be like talking about you know yeah. you're handing me this crisis yeah yeah and bush like sucker yeah. fuck off and walks out of, out of frame or whatever i'm thinking this is a movie but yeah, it could yeah, be well, a play i mean well i would think it would, he would be more comfortable with a play would margot but. robbie be in it uh, yeah, naked yeah, in the bathtub. Hopefully, okay. Just, just for, just for my sake. But um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I think uh, yeah. The big I short, like it. I like it. That'd be pretty good too. I, I think he'd be prolific enough. He could probably do both. Yeah. And something about the pandemic, and you know, the ocean being on fire as recently happened, yeah. and the heat dome that you know. Yeah, hit all of us. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, he'd, yeah. He'd, he'd, have he'd have a lot, a lot of to say yeah. about uh, the disaster that is the world today. Definitely. So on that cheery note. <laughs> Um, we're, we're going right into the cheeriest of cheery plays. Absolutely. Is, the happiest Macbeth. of them all. Macbeth, yes. And we will have a special guest on for that episode. Our friend Brittany, um, has agreed to come back to, um, join us for a discussion of her, it's her favorite play. Yes. Um, I, maybe I'm putting words into her mouth. No, I think she said that. Did in she say that? Episode, yeah. I know she likes the history plays a lot. Macbeth is not really a history play, although based on a historical figure, yes. there was a King Macbeth. There was. Who was... Not as hated by the Scots. You're ruining the next episode, Lynn. No, we'll I'm get talking to about the, the real guy. And we'll talk about the real guy next Fine. episode with Brittany. She'll What's be... after Macbeth? Teaching Shakespeare. Oh, teaching Shakespeare. Yeah, so, so I think we may lean on yourself. And maybe Brittany can jump in. <laughs> Brittany, another teacher. Yes, uh, we've got are... a few teacher friends who yeah. have taught Shakespeare yeah, throughout we, the we years. We might get a guest on for that one, too, yeah. as well. We'll see. But, um, yeah, teaching Shakespeare should be fun because it's, it's something that... Uh, 
having never done it, um, but always having sympathy for, especially my poor well, high you, school teachers. You were a student, so you uh, well, had Shakespeare taught to absolutely, you. Absolutely. But I mean, it's different to figure out how are you going to get these 15-year-olds mm-hmm. to understand to be or not to be, uh, and you're not. But you're going to try. So it's it's just a, it's a different challenge. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one because yeah, I'm be looking good, forward to learning from you. Good so. conversation. You yeah. you look forward to learning from me? Yeah, of course. Aw. I thought, yeah. see, I, I think about this podcast as like, uh, we sit across from each other, we look at each other, but we're talking, I, I feel like you're not listening when I'm talking. <laughs> like, I, most of the time when I talk, I feel like you're not listening when I'm talking. Yeah, yeah. And occasionally I will admit there's times where I'm like, is she going to drone on this bullet on our notes for the next 10 minutes? And then you do. And I'm like, wow. Says the guy who spent 20 minutes talking about mercantilism. And I can go for another 20, baby. Anytime you want to talk about the gold standard, baby, I'm here for it. Um, but our listeners don't have to be. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> and uh, we hope you'll join us next time. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.